So we were just chatting about the amygdala. And if you want to ask me any questions about it, I can answer them and then edit it together. And that's a podcast. I'm Owen Muir, and I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. This is the Frontier Psychiatrists, plural, podcast, which goes along with Frontier Psychiatrists newsletter on Substack. There's a lot of discussion in the field right now about location, neuroanatomy, or chemistry, neurobiology. The Frontier Psychiatrist is a health-themed newsletter, but I do work as a physician, and that's Chelsea who works with me, you're hearing. This is a regular work conversation that, in the middle of it, I decided to say, hey, can we just record this and maybe it'll turn into a show? And it kind of did. So listen in. And what I'm always thinking about is pilot two crossover. So if we're talking about the upregulation and downregulation of the amygdala. What are the actual neurochemical aspects of how the amygdala would be upregulated or downregulated? Most medical terms come from Latin and amygdala is Latin for almond. The fear center of the brain is a bilateral nuclei, one on the left, one on the right, and it regulates the emotion of fear and its recognition and response in humans. Neurochemistry is a great way of selling drugs and selling explanations that are easy to understand. When we talk about neurochemistry, we're talking about a synapse between two nerves which are trying to communicate. There's a tiny little gap. And although the amygdala is what started us out, I'm first going to describe casually to my work colleague in the following clip what uh, makes a neuron fire or not anywhere in the brain, not just the amygdala. And the way a nerve communicates with another nerve cell is because a neurotransmitter is released from one and floats its way across a tiny little gap and then hits a receptor on the other side. And that creates a change in that subsequent cell, which makes it either more likely or less likely to fire. What, what's really happening next is within that cell, there are intracellular changes that lead to increasing uh, likelihood of reaching an action potential and itself firing and effectuating the next change in its neighbor cells or not. By focusing really narrowly on neurochemistry, because we can look at it and modify it, we're getting obsessed with answerable questions and not with important questions is my general take. For example, we don't give people just hyper glutamate the excitatory neurotransmitter of the brain. They'll have a seizure. Those are excitatory impulses that open ion channels that cause immediate depolarization and firing of neurons. Uncontrolled depolarization lead to seizure and death. GABAergic drugs do the opposite things. So anything binding to the GABA receptor opens a chloride channel. Chloride's negatively charged, and that changes the inside of the cell's voltage to negative, which means it's less likely to fire because you need more glycine and glutamate to make it go up. This is actual office conversation in a neuroscience psychiatric practice between two work colleagues. And so GABA, safe to agonize because you're not going to get a seizure and withdrawal, dangerous because now you're more likely to fire. We're focusing on other compounds like serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, which are functionally regulating the internal cellular environment that makes firing more likely. And we focused on it because it's safer because you can regulate intracellular changes without getting immediate seizures, which is great. It's harder to understand because it takes longer. And there, this thing gets upregulated. That makes this other process more likely. This clears out that neurotransmitter. This means there's a little bit more of that one around. And several weeks later, a cell is more likely to do this or that. And then there are subsequent changes. 
we got obsessed with what we knew we could do and not immediately kill somebody as opposed to what might actually be effective or is happening naturally because on its own, our cells are firing and releasing neurotransmitters and pulling them back up and regulating their voltage without us messing with it at all. I think the chemistry argument at the level of the amygdala, for example, is part of the story. But when we're talking about what information the amygdala is kicking out, it's really how fast is it firing? That's my kind of argument. It's a rhythm answer. The amygdala's job is to learn when to be afraid. And the disorder that arises from hyperactive amygdalas is PTSD. It's a little bit like we looked at the stage plot for ACDC and saw they had a lot of cables and started really worrying about which cable plugged into the guitar as opposed to, are they going to play in time? And you can replace the strings, the guitars, <laughs> the, the cables, and you do not have a good ACDC show if they play out of time. And if they're playing in time, it, even if the guitar cuts out, like bass, drums, Angus still locked in and it rocks and you're fine. We focused, at least from my impression, on what's focus onable, not what mattered. The main neurotransmitters of the amygdala are exactly the ones you were just talking about. Glycine and glutamate are the primary excitatory neurotransmitters in the brain and inputs to the amygdala. And GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter, again, a primary regulator of amygdala functioning because it has to learn stuff and learn it fast. The N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor is a binding site that modulates glutamine glycine. The NMDA receptor has been getting a lot of press recently because ketamine and esketamine modulate this receptor. And similarly, the compound avulity, which is a combination of dextromethorphan and bupropion to inhibit the metabolism of dextromethorphan, are also NMDA receptor modulators in ways that are a little bit complicated, but we'll get into at another time. So that makes sense as to why ketamine would have such strong effects on PTSD, since it works primarily on NMDA and GABA. That would downregulate the amygdala, which would help with buffering against the overactivity associated with PTSD in subcortical areas. The rate of firing functionally comes down because each firing of a nerve in the amygdala becomes less likely by something. Something to this whole hippie thing of vibration and vibe. I think it's actually literally true at the level of the neurons in the brain. Yes. I think wavelength, similarly, accidental term, I don't know, but it's the literal truth. We know that neural firing from some research that I've read does actually have an effect on motor movements and right. speech patterns. And so there probably is some truth to the fact that upregulation of certain circuits is going to cause speech pattern and motor movement differences that are going to basically be the bodily rhythmic reflection of the brain activity. Because we all sense those things about each other through our brains, we would actually pick up a vibe. We're building a model of the vibe. What, what I propose is happening is that everything in the brain is represented by a pattern of firing. It's click, click of one nerve group, right? And in the other person's brain, it's click, click. But in our brains, we build a model of our click and then we build a model with clicks in our own neurons of the other person. What we're constantly doing is building models of other people's minds in our mind with our own pattern of firing. Then we pick up signals from their motor movements, which is behavior. We're resynchronizing our own model with their own model. And we're constantly just getting it a little bit wrong and getting back into sync. And what humans love is feeling in sync. 
when we dance, we're dancing in time. Like the guy who dances badly, we find displeasurable. When we dance together, we find it joyous. When we're dancing to the beat, we enjoy that because our brains are all representing the beat in our brains in the same time. And we can look and see and feel with high bandwidth sensory cortex, high bandwidth motor cortex that we are together. And that lets us not bump into each other when we're dancing and emotionally not bump into each other's feelings when we're communicating. The dopamine system, for example, which is so profoundly regulating ventral striatal activity around motor gating is also implicated in not just that motor gating, but gating of behavior. And some of that behavior is our feelings and how we react to the feelings and how we talk or think or sing. And this is how we can do things like lie to each other in the form of politeness and not get enraged, right? Because there's sometimes when someone lies to you and it's bad and how dare you lie to me. There are times when someone says, thank you so much for calling. And we recognize that their thanks may not be sincere. And both of us are definitely on the same page about that. But the underlying intent that we have modeled for the statement is one that is beneficent. Mm -hmm. We're both on the same page about that metadata, which is, oh, the person's lying to me, but it's because they care and want me to feel good. And so I'm going to think this lie is kind in this context. And in other contexts, my internal model was that they shouldn't have lied as opposed to should have lied. So it's not the lie. It's the intent that we model and can reconnect to that allows human behavior and, and motion, right, to go well. If someone's a bad dancer because they have Parkinson's, you're not going to love it, even if you don't know they have Parkinson's. And you may feel more positively inclined to them if you understand they have a reason for it. But if you can't move to the beat, either emotionally, behaviorally, or physically, it doesn't feel good. And we feel good when we move together. The power of the amygdala is the power to create an overwhelming sense of overdrive in the rhythms in our brains. And so an over-firing amygdala compared to what you imagine in somebody else, that's what trauma does. It creates a built-in mistrust and an out-of-syncness between what the traumatized person is feeling and understanding and what the non or not at that moment traumatized person is kind of getting out of the interaction. And it's that asynchronicity that is misunderstood that leads to such distress in interactions between traumatized individuals and people who don't get it at the moment. But the take. We've had some discussions about this previously about you're not valuing agreeableness or not liking that quality of when people pretend to be polite and I tend to be more like that. And I think when I do that, oftentimes when I attempt politeness or I attempt positivity, even in a situation that things feel pretty dire and I don't really feel that way, what I'm actually doing, my intention is I'm trying to slow down the dance. I'm trying to introduce something to the dyad that I'm a part of yeah. that is not necessarily totally authentic in that I'm not maybe feeling it in that moment, but I want for both me and the other person to feel it. I desire, so I create the desired state in affect in hopes that the dance will move in that direction. It often works, actually. If you just fake it till you make it and you choose grace and you choose to give someone more calm and more positivity than you might feel like they deserve, they often follow suit by giving it back to you. 
Now, Chelsea is not a therapist. Uh, she's in training to be one. In this context, she's an administrator. She's also evidence of what happens if you spend a hell of a lot of time reading neuroscience papers and trying to actually understand them. So uh, it's not a civilian level conversation, but it's not a hyper specialist chat either. Anybody can learn this stuff and read the same papers we have. And what mentalizing and Peter Fonagy would say about this is like the way to do that most successfully, because there are some people who will interpret it because of their experience and trauma, for example, as a lie, an aversive lie. And that'll create mistrust and they'll get agitated, right? Like, how dare you be polite to me? Right? For those individuals and for people who like politeness, you can do the same thing, which is mark your intentions. Peter Fonagy is the CEO of the Anna Freud Center in the UK and the developer, along with Anthony Bateman, of mentalization-based treatment, a therapeutic modality and, frankly, way of living that I've spent a long time with um, and write and podcast about pretty regularly. Mistrust means fear, and fear means the amygdala. And the amygdala learns, or we all die, what to do fast when there's fear. And so I'm saying, I'm going to be polite now. Just that much. Set it up. I am behaving in a way because I hope it will be helpful. You can tell me if that's not how it comes across. Then you can do whatever you want and you have the spoonful of acknowledging the rationale for your behavior that gives them the additional information that you're doing it in, in the intent of XYZ. As opposed to just being polite and they can assume you're scamming them with your politeness. Because there are people who have been harmed and scammed and traumatized by polite people who wanted to abuse them. And thus politeness for them may be a signal of risk. And so it's the ability to mark that I'm not sure if politeness is the right way to go, but I'm going to try it out. That is the kind of permission slip to behave however you need to behave and also eat if it goes poorly in a way that's tolerable. Wow, my politeness really came across badly there. I can see by the look on your face that politeness was the wrong approach. Then suddenly they feel understood and they don't want to argue with you anymore. Uh, we've talked before about having a mini version of the other person in your head, which according to this conversation, the mini representation of the person that we have would be not only our conceptions of them and abstract representations, but actually be a literal rhythmic firing of neurons, which explains sort of emotional contagion and how you can literally feel someone else's feelings. Mirror neurons is a metaphor for mirror patterns of circuits firing. Right. When we're looking at different schools of therapy and some people are saying all of the feelings that you're feeling are definitely countertransference are all coming from your past. It sounds like what you're saying is that's not actually accurate. What really is happening is that we're getting rhythmic representations of the person that are combining with the conceptions that we previously had of what those rhythmic representations mean to create a sort of mini person inside of us that then informs both our immediate affect as well as our ability to predict another person's behavior across time. Uh, a million percent correct. So it's yes and. Therapy is neuromodulation using sensory experience of another plus the representations they have of us and the representations we have of them and the desync resync on repeat is what therapy is. If, if you've seen projective identification, when you come across that term, the ability to invoke in another person psychodynamically a behavior, that's literally true because my ability as a human to create a model of you and perturb that model and react to the perturbances I see in a way that's in keeping with my internal representation. That's how fish swim in schools. They're not 
sending a letter to all the other fish in advance being like, okay, so at second 17, turn left. They're modeling all of the other fish and then swimming in context with the model and then adjusting the model in each fish. So there's constant adjustment of how much the school is moving because we're all building models of the school and checking them with each other node in the network. In therapy, you have a dyad that's doing the same thing. I move left and I expect you to move right and you move right as far as you move right. And then that hits or doesn't hit the model I have. And then we move back to the center and then we do it over and over again. That's the misunderstandings that are the neuromodulatory agent in psychotherapy, but it's actually brain rhythms in both people's brains firing and then checking and error checking against the visual sensory interpretation as presented to consciousness and heavily edited by subcortical structures that makes that dance happen. It's actually the getting it wrong, just like in meditation, we're attending, losing the attention, bringing it back to the flame. And the bringing it back to the flame is why we meditate, not staying on the flame. It's not supposed to be easy. It's better if it's hard because it's a workout. Therapy is better if it's hard because it's a workout. But it's not for the process of just attention regulation. It's a process of resyncing to get to better interhuman and in intrapersonal things. Because when you do it in therapy, then you get to do it out in the world when the therapist isn't there. At all. So being a therapist who's a little bit wrong all the time and then gets back to it is the real answer. Ta-da. How's that? Good. I'll see if it turns into anything. Well, what it turned into was that. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Dr. Owen Muir. Uh, this is the Frontier Psychiatrist uh, Substack and podcast that goes with it, the Frontier Psychiatrists, plural, .substack.com. And uh, please give us a five-star review on whatever you're listening on because it drives discovery and share it with your friends because that's a big deal. Uh I write a daily healthcare newsletter slash make this podcast by my lonesome. And of course, the people who help me do it, like Chelsea, um, having that conversation with me. I appreciate the time you spent with this podcast, and I hope you'll share it with someone who it might help. Science is evolving all the time, and we're always getting things wrong. So if any of this is off, well, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. There is a lot of humility in the process of being uh, constantly uh, revised by what's in your world and what you learn. And we hope to bring that same humility to the work we do with the people who need it.